not uncommon after the first day, first full day, for people to be wondering, what have I done? A lot of you have been on these retreats before, so after a while it gets familiar, not that it doesn't happen, but that it's both, I think, it can be doubt, but it also can be uh, an accurate sense of what we've decided to do, you know, to go from a life that is characterized by a lot of distractedness and superficiality, being swept along by habit, and uh, feeling inspired, some moments quite a bit inspired, other moments sort of inspired to see if there's another way. And then we end up at a place like IMS on a nine-day retreat. And especially the first day or so, it can be shocking to the system. I mean, one of the first things we can experience on a day, first day, is just the reverberations of having been living the way we've been living. Oh, living the way I've been living feels like this. Like when we come into a space where we can begin to feel and see what's here, then we feel the, in a more clear way at least, a more honest way, we begin to feel the reverberations of the kind of attitudes that dominate our minds and the kind of choices that we make and the kind of activities we absorb into. It's not just true for yogis on retreat, but also teachers coming to teach retreats, right? There's this transition time. And what's interesting is uh, our relationship to that. And I think it really, really illuminates something that is really at the heart of what we're trying to do here. And it's not so much we're trying to be aware or trying to be mindfully aware as much as we're learning to recognize the value of awareness. Learning to recognize awareness more and more and to appreciate the value of it the stabilizing, I mean, just in a very simple, immediate sense, it's protecting just to be relating with awareness, protects the mind, the heart, from being swept away in ways that wouldn't be helpful for myself or for others. And it's so easy to forget to appreciate, to value mindful awareness. So I want to talk about what we mean by this Pali word, sati, what the Buddhist teachings are pointing to, and to understand, especially these first few days, some of the ways that we might over-effort in ways that are not productive or helpful, and ways we might under-effort or just all the various unskillful 
ways to relate to the task at hand. In a way, that's a lot of what we learn over the years in practice is what is wise effort around awareness look like, feel like. So we can sense for ourselves like, oh yeah, this isn't helping. (laughs) This isn't onward leading to more wholesome states, more liberated states of mind, of heart. In the Dhammapada, there's this uh, teaching. This is a collection of the Buddhist teachings, early Buddhist teachings. Truly, wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one one's conduct let one con, uh, conduct oneself so that wisdom may increase. And we hear that word meditation and we might immediately think of our sitting times. But really, all of our waking hours, that's really our training ground. And it was interesting, I forget when it was, but at a recent retreat that Joseph Goldstein led, I think I might have been one, he was teaching at Spirit Rock that I was one of the teachers at, but he he just did something that I thought was so helpful because we tend to put all the value, okay, I'm going to be aware when I'm here in the hall, but not until I settle down and not until any, everybody else is in the room and not when there's a disturbance. But at all the other times, I'm going to really apply myself. And then the bell rings and it's like, okay, we got a break till the next time. And I know we don't, we know better than to think that, but that can be the underlying <clears throat> subtle, not recognized attitude in the mind. So what Joseph said is, in terms of priority, daily activities first, that's the most important place to cultivate mindful awareness. To re- and cult- by cultivating it, we mean recognizing it and valuing it we see or recognize that capacity of our mind, of our heart, to be aware of what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing. Like it might be knowing the lifting and the moving and the placing of a step. Or it might be knowing the reaching of the arm. It might be knowing seeing. It might be knowing planning mind deciding what we're going to have for breakfast or whatever. So we're recognizing that and we're recognizing the value of it. And that's what builds the momentum. It's not enough to recognize this capacity for awareness, but we're also recognizing how functional it is that the effect it has in the mind, the heart, the immediate effect, it may be somewhat subtle, but we want to recognize, no, no, it's wholesome, so that it builds the trust and the valuing of it. So first is daily activities, 
Then the next priorities are walking times, formal walking meditation times. And the third priority is sitting meditation. And just let that play with your mind a little bit. You know, it's like the bell at the end of the sit rings. And then it's like, okay, this, this is the important time now. <laughs> you know, like how to, to kind of keep in mind, to recognize as you begin to move the body and then stand up. And then all of that social conditioning that comes online when we're navigating space with all the other retreatants, getting out of the room, doing whatever we're going to do next. And all the different qualities of doubt about should I walk over there (laughs) or should I do my walking practice here or should I go back to my room, maybe tea drinking practice. All of that is really good context to simply remember to recognize this is being known. And to experiment with the noting practice, not just when you're here in the hall observing the rising and falling of the abdomen or the touching as the air is going in and out of the nostrils or whatever however you experience that natural process of breathing in and breathing out. And it's so easy because we will forget to recognize awareness, to somehow write off the particular activity, whatever it is, especially now daily life activities. But that's a perfect place to begin again. You know, mindfulness, it doesn't, doesn't really care what the next object. So we're just remembering to recognize that whatever the object is, it's being known. That's what awareness does. It's awareness, mindful awareness, is recognizing what the mind is knowing and, or doing. So anything the mind is doing or knowing is fine to have a moment of awareness, to recognize, oh yeah, this is being known. Recognize it enough that the mind notices that and can name it even. Oh, this is what the mind is doing. This is what the mind is knowing. Once we have some confidence in awareness, then naturally the mind is going to be interested in what supports building some momentum, some continuity of present moment awareness. What undermines the continuity of awareness? And actually both are really important lessons. So... You know, if you're going through a spell, which I'm guessing we're we're all going to go through, many probably, these spells where there's doubt or frustration or some entanglement, some old emotional psychological pattern gets triggered for whatever reasons and is active and is somewhat 
deluding the mind, the mind is taking it personally, right? Just to be inspired to recognize, right? To remember to recognize this is being known. Like, don't believe that thought. I'm so messed up now, I can't practice now. Maybe when the storm settles, maybe when I get back my tranquility vibe, then then I'll try to do it. So really uh, challenge yourself to experiment. And this is where that, you know, a lot of people can be dismissive of the verbalization, like the simple mental note, basically asking the mind, you think you're mindful? (laughs) Well, then just simply lovingly name what it is the mind is knowing, right? But that that sort of uh, request to note, to notice, to name, to label, can really, uh, it brightens the mind. And it really uh, is, as I'll talk about, it, it's how we, in a very earthy way, bring right view or wise view into the practice. You know, it's not complicated. We don't have to think about anatta or anicca, dukkha, or, you know, the empty nature of all phenomena. The simple task of, you know, this is just a sense, a felt sense of stepping back, a kind of spaciousness or dispassionate sense that, oh, this is what's being known. So that capacity to simply name or notice that breathing in or lifting, moving, placing of the foot or the reaching for the light switch or the chewing the oatmeal, tasting the oatmeal. Just that that understanding that can name it or notice it, oh, it's just this tasting that's being known. See, there's already that that, uh, mental activity of naming or noticing in that way requires some wise view. Because when the mind's entangled, identified with what the mind is doing or knowing, then it's not standing back in a sense with this capacity to recognize it's a phenomena being known or being felt. And what I mentioned earlier about can we sense the benefit of a moment of awareness? That's that little taste of freedom right there. I, one of the, when I first got interested in Buddhism in the early 80s, there weren't too many books that I knew about that I could get my hands on. But one I remember somewhere around that time was The Miracle of Mindfulness. And I remember kind of rolling my eyes at the title, like it just seemed a little grandiose. Because <laughs> uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, you know, a lot of times when we sit down to meditate or we remember to be present, you know, it's, it's not a pretty sight. Because like I mentioned, we've, we're going to be aware of what the reverberation is from having not been aware 
So then, having not been aware, then it's very easy for the mind to have been relating with greed or with aversion in deluded ways because there was no wisdom and awareness to recognize this isn't helping. So then when we do have a moment of awareness, then we'll notice the you know, bodily, energetic, emotional, all of the entanglements, the natural, unavoidable uh, results of having been relating in the way the mind has been relating. And it can feel like, why would anybody do this? But if we persist enough, we'll sense that, you know, even if it is a little grandiose, that miracle of mindfulness. That it really, when, when we, when the mind really understands what it means to recognize that this experience is something, is just that, an experience being known, there's knowing of this experience. Sometimes in Buddhism we'll call that a moment of mind, something is being known. And then already that recognition that it's just this experience being felt or known, it still may be unpleasant or maybe very pleasant or maybe neutral, but the understanding that it's something in this moment being known has a flavor of liberation. The mind is already less dependent on that experience that's being known. There's a sense of space. But strangely, it's not like uh, an indifferent space, like we're over here on some watchtower looking down on our body and mind, you know, and we're this supreme awareness gazing down. That's not, it's not the experience, although sometimes we can misunderstand the practice in that way. The awareness, the knowing, you know, knowing that this is being known, it's so interesting, it's all, it's all right here. I know Joseph makes this point um, in one of his books about that flavor of fullness with uh, moments of mindfulness, moments of mindful awareness. There's something whole or full And I think we can even use the word complete. And I'm really emphasizing this point because what will help us build momentum in our practice is that recognition that moments of mindful awareness are liberating and healing and onward leading. All the other beautiful, wholesome qualities of mind start to gather. And so part of what we need is this, uh, it's like pointing out or encouragement so that when we're mindful and we're feeling what, it's, what it feels like, seeing what it looks like, this bodily, these bodily activities, these mental activities, we're not discouraged and we keep, noticing what else is being known. And you might begin to notice, because we 
have gotten this instruction from Joseph Goldstein about recognizing that quality of fullness. Like the mind or the heart doesn't have to be divided. This is from uh, Ajahn Sumedho in a book I think is great. You can get it online. It's called Intuitive Awareness. Ajahn Sumedho is a Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition, kind of one of our elders now. He's well into his 80s. And he wrote in that book, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change, of emotional change. Stay with that. Because it's a refuge that is indestructible. And I want to read a little bit more, but that uh, refuge that is indestructible. And there's something about that, you know, when I mention Joseph's word of fullness, there's something in that that the wisdom understands that whatever experience were to arise, awareness can know that too. And the image that's often used is of a mirror. You know, a mirror doesn't flinch at what happens in front of the mirror. It just reflects it, just reflects it, just reflects it. It may be an intensely gross thing happening in front of the mirror or an amazingly beautiful thing. But the mirror has that capacity to just do its job. And this is... uh, can be tricky for us because when we come to a place, we just presume, like IMS, we just presume that I'm here to do the mindfulness. It's going to take a lot of personal effort for me to be aware, for me to be mindful of this and to, to, then to be mindful of that. And so when we have that, I think, unhelpful attitude, then we tend to over-rely on like focusing. So the mind starts to have a not-so-helpful relationship with our anchor, our anchors, you know, like walking, the lifting, the moving forward, the dropping of the foot, especially when we're walking slowly or all of the obvious bodily activities, the different postures when we're sitting. Initially, uh, we'll use the rising and falling or movement of the breath, however you feel that most clearly. But this, uh, this, you know, even though we might be using an anchor, there's something in the awareness that's inclusive of the totality of the moment, of what the mind is knowing. Because we're aware of the mind knowing. And even though in any given moment, objects are in the forefront of attention, the attention, everything else is there, maybe in the periphery or the background. So there's some, there's that inclusive or full sense. And when we harmonize, when we trust, 
awareness, the capacity of awareness to simply reflect this is what the mind is knowing. Whether it's the next moment sensations of breathing in or noticing that the mind is planning or the mind is complaining or whatever it might be doing, complaining is being known. There's something that, uh, there's that sense that this is all the mind needs, is to be aware, to remember to be aware or to remember to recognize awareness. Because I think for me, I mean, this is, it's always a little troublesome putting it into words, but the way I put it into words is there's some intuitive sense in those moments of awareness that everything is quite capable of happening on its own. Even me being a yogi at IMS or me being a teacher at IMS seems to be doing fine. (laughs) Without that extra sense of me doing the activity of being a yogi at IMS or me doing the activity of being a teacher at IMS or whatever it might be. So look for that sense when you get some momentum, some continuity of present moment awareness, you might have that sense of the natural fruit of the continuity of mindful awareness is, uh, you know, I'll say strange because it doesn't fit our idea of the world or our, our, our idea of my life. But there's a sense of trust. And I think it really opens, begins to open the heart to this, the path. And a deeper sense of what the Buddha might mean by liberation. This, what did we call it in our description of this retreat? I think we use the phrase, the heart's sure release or the sure release of the heart the unshakable release of the heart. Because it can seem pretty far-fetched when our mind is often entangled and worried and frightened and anxious and needy and heavy for this reason or that reason and a lot of shame or self-doubt. And then, you know, we read something from the Buddhist teachings and they're talking about the unshakable deliverance of the heart, the heart sure release. And it can actually add to that sense of, well, not for me. And, um, you know, I must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. And, uh, And there's a lot of this, even in the Buddhist culture, you know, putting off awakening because of this arrogant certainty that, well, oh, poor me, with my messed up life, can't possibly hope to move or in the direction of awakening, in the direction of freedom. So I'll you know, just try not to get in trouble and hope for the better location next time around. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually not uncommon in, in Buddhist culture for this idea to arise. 
But we want to, it's, it's really for our well-being and the well-being of those around us to get interested in what the Buddha means by awareness, mindful awareness. Get interested in enough to realize for yourself the value of it. And to, to get a sense, that intuitive sense of the value of awareness so that it creates this natural feedback mechanism in our heart. I mean, it's probably, whether you recognize it or not, what gets some of you back to IMS. Some of you have been coming back for, you know, here for a long time or getting you yourself to the next morning sit or the next moment of awareness in your daily life. But we can amplify this feedback loop by being aware of it. And it's really important to be aware of the fruits of practice. And it's especially useful to, even when the conditions of our body, the conditions of the emotions we're feeling, the conditions of the quality of our mind, even the conditions of what's happening around us, even when they're not to our liking, those moments, even those difficult moments, are perfectly suitable for to recognize how valuable awareness is. In some ways, they can be more impactful, the difficult moments, to really sense how doing my best to recognize that this is being known. It's not, I'm not trying to make the difficult experience go away. I'm just, we're learning in a sense to come back to that same, uh, you know, resonating that same place, recognizing that same capacity to the heart, this is being known. Like even now as I'm talking, the predominant experience you're experiencing, it's being known. Can you recognize that it's being known? And can you recognize the inclusiveness of that awareness? That even though there may be something predominant in what you're knowing, so you recognize what's being known, But notice the totality of the moments right here, nowhere else. It's like this, isn't it? And do you feel, can you sense how trustworthy? It's almost like, you know, when we meet our special someone, if you're so lucky and have a dear one, dear friend, or a lover in your life, partner, you know, and there can be that sense, you know, we were made to be together. But uh, we can have that with awareness, too. In a, in a funny way, and I don't know about funny, but maybe in a sort of way we wouldn't normally think. You know, in our early Buddhist practice, people like ourselves who really tune into the Buddha as our teacher... Um, this awareness of the way it is, Buddha 
being intimate with Dhamma that Deb talked about last night, this is our devotional object. You know, we have statues and other sort of religious art. You can see there's a nice collection around the retreat center. You'll probably have already noticed. But all of those things, like the statue behind us, behind me, you know, it's it's just an artistic rendition of being intimate with the way it is. You know, recognizing it's like this. That's what. That's the point of the statue. And so the real devotional object isn't the statue or the institution or the teachers or even the teachings. It's really this capacity we have in our own heart that we're learning to keep in mind all day long, not just during the formal sitting times. And each moment builds momentum. Even if you've like really been lost in thought for a while, it's like money in the bank. The next moment where the mind recognizes Oh yeah, this is being known. Whatever it is that's predominant, or just use your posture, whatever the posture is in that moment, if you don't have a clear sense of what's predominant. Sitting is like this. Or go back to breathing if you're in your sitting posture here in the hall. Oh yeah, breathing in is like this. Breathing in is being known. Breathing out, being known. Or that rising, falling, or touching as the air goes in, touching as the air goes out. Just these specific characteristics of our physical experience. Because it isn't about, like there's something special about the air touching the nostrils, or the, something special about that movement. What's special is actually the movement from a mind that is mostly dependent and identified with its conceptual activities to a mind recognizing this capacity to be aware. So we're using the anchor and the other skillful means like using mental noting in a skillful way or at least that ongoing clear noticing, we're using these skillful means to keep awareness, wisdom and awareness in mind and noticing what the effect is. We really become a student of the Buddhist teachings when we begin to internalize for our own, our own selves the value of the practice. So we're less dependent on readings or teachings, teachers to inspire us because any moment where there's that recognition, this is being known, there's a sense of the path and where the path leads, even if it's very subtle. There's some sense because we've trained ourselves to notice that. One of the important teachers I've 
had the good fortune to study with uh, Saito Tejaniya. I remember at the end of a two-week retreat, him saying something like, this is just a rough paraphrase. Um, yeah, he didn't say <laughs> something about, uh, you know what really moves me is that if, and he, he pointed to us, the retreatants on that retreat, he said, if you understood the value of awareness, then you would make the effort to keep it in mind. And that's the hard thing is a lot of what we're doing on these retreats and in our daily sitting practice at home is we're, you know, because it's easy. Our mind is sort of built to want to do things on autopilot. It's like we do the hard thing of learning a new skill, but then we can chop carrots without really being be chatting with our friend or doing two other things with our mind and get dinner ready because we don't really have to be there. And uh, so we tend to do the same thing with awareness practice, mindful awareness practice, you know, where we, we got the posture down, we know the right way to talk about things. <laughs> it's just easy. And the the one characteristic or one of the characteristics of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, is it, it has to be always fresh. There's, it's like autopilot is in the complete opposite direction of being present. Because there's only being present to, you know, here and now. And that, and that one of the the things that brings up that energy of inspiration and that sense of awareness, mindful awareness being onward leading, is that sense, like the mystery of the present moment. It's almost like what the heart or wisdom is sensing is how profound our ignorance is. <laughs> when, we, when we have a moment of awareness, Right, if there's some sense that all our ideas about me and this don't actually apply, and that's what makes it onward leading. Like, oh, precisely because all of the old ways don't make as much sense, we're drawn to continue with our practice to see where it leads. <laughs> I never finished Ajahn Sumedho's quote. I ended with, <laughs> stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. And then later he writes, it's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. A lot of times, you know, we might think that being here, doing our practice is self-indulgent. And uh, so I thought I'd share this teaching from the Buddha. But mindfulness, bhikkhus, practitioners, I say is always useful. 
And then another place he says, I will protect myself, bhikkhus. Thus should the foundation of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others, bhikkhus. Thus should the foundations of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And this is an experiment we can do for ourselves. You know, just see when there's some continuity, some valuing of present moment awareness, are you in fact protecting yourself and protecting others? Sometimes when I'm doing the intro class, I'll tell the people in the class, you know, just see, you know, when... uh, when you feel like you're being really unskillful, causing yourself harm or others harm, and you bring awareness, just see what happens. So I'll say, like, can you be a jerk and be mindful? Because as soon as we recognize the unskillfulness of how the mind is relating, the attitude in the mind, This is the thing, this is another power of some continuity of present moment awareness. Again, that wisdom that discerns like what's skillful and unskillful, we often think that I have to do that. I mean, how often in the last few weeks were we in that place where like, is this skillful or is this unskillful? And and it can seem to us like we have to engage some sort of cognitive process to figure out whether something we're doing in our life is skillful or unskillful. But with the continuity of mindful awareness, it, it becomes clearer and clearer in that direct, immediate way. It's not <clears throat> that it doesn't arise through that cognitive process. It's a felt sense. Oh, yeah. It's like realizing we're holding a hot pan and we drop it. Or realizing something feels right in our bones and we continue in that direction. And this is so useful in a world that is so ambiguous and confusing and complex. And some of you, you know, whether your parents are navigating challenging things in your life in this way or that way, or just taking care of your own body can be so complicated and complex. And and it doesn't mean that mindfulness sort of knows the secret about how much we should eat and whether we should be gluten-free or not or (laughs) these sort of specific things. But mindfulness knows in this deeper way what attitudes, what ways of relating lead to suffering and what ways of being and ways of relating are liberating regardless of circumstance. I mean, it's the, the, what the Buddha presents to us as the fruit of practice, it should strike us as being a little out there. You know, the unconditioned release of the heart. Unconditioned meaning 
the release from greed, the release from fear and anxiety doesn't depend on conditions. I mean, that's shocking because we know when things go south, when something bad happens to us, how even little things can sort of really bother us. I was just walking here from the teacher village and I was feeling really good. But I had just uh, taken a bath. My hair was wet. And I think those flies like that. So about halfway here, you know, it's like flies, those bigger flies just wanting to land in my hair. And and then it was just so interesting. It's like how <laughs> tormented the mind could feel. I mean, it was a little funny for me. Just like, it was like two or three flies <clears throat> doing what flies do. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, and the nice thing about these uh, torments that I'm sure you've recognized a few today, maybe even now, pain in the body, boredom, you know, whatever it might be, it's the the mind taking the torment seriously that can be what wakes the practice back up. Well, this is interesting. There appears to be suffering, right? Right. That's the next moment of practice. This experience of suffering is being known. The tormented one is being known. It's like this. Like I was thinking about the, the, the next thought after the moment of being tormented by the flies was, well, I was, it's like one-upmanship with the flies. Well, when I walk back later tonight, you know, the flies will be gone because they're not out at night. You know, and then, then it will be peaceful. And it's that sort of uh, subtle justification for being in conflict with the moment. And, and it's like the way our mind, heart is conditioned, we probably have, you know, 10,000, 100,000 ways to justify being in conflict with the moment. It's in a way, given how our mind is conditioned, the habit energies, it's the easiest thing for us to do is to be in conflict. It's like the temperature of the room. Even if it's for someone in the room now, the perfect temperature, we could still find a way to be in conflict like, yeah, but it may not always be this temperature. <laughs> so we will find a way to be in conflict. And, and the sort of usual uh, move would be then to sort of like that parental move, oh, stop that, Mark. Stop being bothered by the flies. That's not helping, right? But that's not our practice. So whatever's happening, we don't, sometimes we might sort of come back to like walking to the anchor, which often would be mindfulness of the body, whether it's the rising and falling of the abdomen or the touching at the nostrils or the lifting and placing 
of the foot or whatever the obvious physical experience might be that because it's for most of us, most of the time, relatively concrete or available, easy to know. But even before rushing back, it might be nice to just acknowledge that being tormented or being confused or being upset is an experience being known. And this is where that mental noting and just finding the right loving touch with that mental note. So it's not shaming, it's not aggressive, it's not perpetuating the conflict. It's just the truth. Not liking flies is being known. That's just the truth. And it's so powerful because it is the truth. I like how uh, in the, I won't go into depths, but in the teaching of the five jhanic factors, you know, there's uh, these elements that stabilize samadhi, you know, the, the ability we have to connect with the present moment, to sustain, to feel some joy in being in the moment, and the ease, that deeper trust in the heart, and that stillness, that one-pointedness, the non-distraction. These are the five jhanic factors. And for each one, it's said that it puts aside one of the hindrances. And I think with the first one of just connecting with the present moment, doubt is removed. Because when like, we're aware of not liking flies, you know, just, oh, aversion, this is aversion, being known. There's no doubt in the mind. It's like, oh yeah, this is the absolute truth. And and it's so empowering because what's so debilitating for us in practice so much of the time is thinking we're the one who doesn't know what we're doing. And therefore thinking other people do know what they're doing. You know, and then the, that triggers the shame or whatever. Or I've been doing this so long and I'm still averse to flies and all that kind of mental proliferation that that can set in motion. Or thinking, you know, why hasn't IMS figured out how to get rid of the flies? <laughs> we were talking about how so many things have been improved over the years. The teachers were earlier today, you know, because some of us have been coming for decades. And, uh, you know, but there's always more. <laughs> because we just get more sensitive. You know, now everybody has a single room. It used to be such a treat back in the day to get a single room. And, you know, so many other things. Like dining hall used to be so crowded. And then they expanded that. And So... This, uh, this simple ability we have to, to name and notice what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing, and to feel the, the truth of that, the grounded truth of that, the earthy truth of that, this is what the mind is knowing now. I may not know so much about what to do with my life, But here, in this moment, 
there can be real confidence and that real sense of being on the path. And then it's just a matter of remembering. You have to keep remembering. And it doesn't matter how many moments we don't remember because those moments come and go. (laughs) And by the time we recognize that we haven't been remembering the present moment, those moments have already passed. So in this moment, having noticed that we've been distracted, that's a moment that's really important. And that's, I think, why Joseph mentioned this daily life. I mean, even though we're sitting a lot still, there's probably more hours just doing everything else between the walking and the eating and the transitions and all the other things we do during the day. And really see how it's possible to build momentum. And don't worry when you lose the momentum. Just tune in to the confidence that momentum can be built. One moment of recognizing awareness after the other. And we're just remembering that real effort is to be interested in recognizing awareness. Not doing it, there is awareness. This capacity is a natural capacity of our mind. But we have to remember to recognize it because it's relatively subtle. And that's why we have the you know, the anchors. And for usually for the first few days in this style of retreat practice, we strongly encourage people to work with the breath as a primary anchor, primary meditation object, because it creates a really nice little training ground where we can practice remembering that the experience of breathing in is being known. How do I know? Because there's this rising happening, this movement of the belly and this falling of the belly and this rising of the belly or the touching or however you feel that movement, that natural process of breathing in being known. It's not about doing the breath and it's not about being aware of the breath. It's recognizing there is awareness remembering to recognize. So we're interested in that awareness. Can you recognize the awareness now? So even if you're self-conscious because of the question, yeah, well, self-consciousness is being known, isn't it? And then we can use your anchor, right? Just bodily experience the Buddha Deeply praised mindfulness of the body as a place to refresh and build momentum and awareness and the recognizing of awareness. Maybe I'll end by just reading a little bit from that sutta, the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of the body. Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. When one thing is practiced and pursued, 
the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all the qualities on the side of clear knowing go to the culmination of their development. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, latent tendencies are uprooted, fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. That's a synonym the Buddha used for awakening the deathless. Those who are heedful of mindfulness of the body are heedful of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. So let's just sit for a moment, let go of the words, recognizing the awareness that's here. Thanks for your attention. So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice now. Come back, do some chanting, and sit for a period of time. So please join us for the evening sit.